So anyway, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, I'm very excited uh, that we have a chance today uh, to really hear about some exciting new work in progress. The best kind of talks are the talks when it's new work, not work you've already read, where the person can't change what they've written, but new work that's exciting, cutting edge, and giving you an opportunity to see where I'm a field... I'm not changing anything. <laughs> ...how our field is developing. Uh, I want to begin by thanking our sponsors who have made this event possible, uh, the Clement Center for History, Strategy, and Statecraft, and the Center for Middle East Studies on campus, the Middle East Studies Center, which is uh, both of whom have worked together to make this possible, the History Department as well, and the LBJ School. We're all one big happy family here. And I should throw in the Strauss Center as well. They generally fund our things as well. So this is really great. And there's no better person uh, to talk about our topic today, U.S.-Middle East relations in the 1970s, than Salim Yacoub. Uh, Salim is a distinguished scholar of U.S.-Middle East relations, uh, but more important than that, uh, he's a good friend. Salim and I were in graduate school together, it seems like eons ago. I long remember many days of coffee discussing these issues. We were just doing the same today. Uh, and what I respect most about Salim, though, is I think he is a, a historian in the best sense of the word, which is that he's someone who is fastidious in his attention to sources someone who spends a lot of time trying to get to the source, to get to the most primary direct sources possible on some very controversial and difficult issues, issues where the sources are often difficult to find, often difficult to discern in multiple languages, but most of all themselves quite politicized. And what I respect most about Salim's work and what I strive for in my own work and in my students' work is to get us beyond what are often the simple answers to understand the complexities behind the simplicity and to understand how the politics of the day often depart us from what are the true dynamics at work. Salim does this, I think, in a way that's honest, in a way that's clear, but most of all, in a way that is readable. He uses narrative to tell a complex story, and that's important as well. We don't need pedantry and um, distraction to tell simple, important stories. And that's what uh, Salim does very well. So it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend and uh, our scholar today, Professor Salim Yacoub. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm going to sit down. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeremy, for that extremely warm and generous introduction. I hope that this you know, playful and speculative talk I give tonight won't completely uh, destroy my reputation for fastidiousness and, uh, and rigor. But, you know, if so, too bad. Uh, so... Uh, the title, as you can see, History Behind the Hustle, Petrodollars, Ab Scam, and Arab American Political Activism, 1973 to 1981. Uh, as the title suggests, my jumping off point, of course, is the movie, American Hustle, which I was very excited to see coming to the theaters. Uh, I, I did enjoy it very much. I didn't think it was qu quite as fabulous as some of the critics said, but it's, it's a good film, and if you haven't seen it yet, I urge you to go see it. Um, and you may remember, what is the inscription that uh, opens the film, if any of you saw it? Some of this actually happened, okay? <laughs> uh, which is by way of saying that it's based on a historical events. And in particular, it's based on um, this episode known as Abscam, in which uh, FBI agents uh, pretending to represent wealthy Arabs, uh, and in some cases uh, impersonating those Arabs themselves, uh, uh, induced members of Congress to take what they thought were bribes from those wealthy Arabs. Um, and 
this you know, connects to the broader subject area indicated by the title, uh, you know, sandwiched between petrodollars and the Arab American uh, political activism, in the sense that um, all of those three concepts are connected to each other. Um, the sharp spike in the price of oil after 1973 uh, provided petroleum-producing countries with enormous revenues, petrodollars, as uh, they were called, uh, to invest in the global economy. And by the second half of the decade, there was widespread fear in the United States that Arab governments, companies, and individuals were using their vast wealth to, uh, quote, buy up America, unquote. And Absgram was a uh, representation of this uh, concern, uh, you know, reflected this uh, anxiety about the, you know, potentially harmful influence of petrodollars uh, on the American uh, body politic. Uh, in the dominance American narrative, Abscam suggested that U.S. democracy itself was vulnerable to corruption. Uh, to many Arab Americans, however, the affair demonstrated the, that anti-Arab prejudice had reached alarming proportions and that concerted political action was necessary to combat that anti-Arab uh, prejudice. So this really um, is... Uh, an important stage in Arab-American political activism. Um, one of the things that I argue in my book is that the 1970s is, is the era in which Arab-Americans really become a self-conscious political group. Um, and you have um, a number of uh, Arab-American organizations coming into being uh, at that time. However, their focus tended to be more on foreign policy uh, rather than on the condition of Arabs and Arab Americans in the United States itself. And what occurs in the wake of Abscam is that you have a new focus for Arab American political activism. They don't forget about foreign policy, they don't forget about the Arab-Israeli conflict, but they also look at the status of Arabs and Arab, uh, and Arab Americans inside uh, the United States and focus uh, particularly on trying to combat what they see as a demeaning or a discriminatory representations of the Arab world in the United States. Um, Abscam also exemplifies a broader pattern in which petrodollars were the occasion for uh, increased alienation between the United States and the Arab world, to be sure, but also for efforts to achieve greater mutual understanding. So it's that dual character of greater alienation, but attempts to transcend that alienation and achieve greater mutual understanding that we need to keep in mind. Okay, so let me just say a little bit about petrodollars. Um, as you know, in uh, 1973, there was a, another round of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, Egypt and Syria went to war against Israel. And in the course of that war, the United States airlifted a very substantial amount of weaponry to Israel. Uh, the Soviet Union did the same for Egypt and Syria. And um, the oil-producing Arab states uh, retaliated against um, uh, that support for Israel by cutting off oil shipments to the United States and to some countries of Western Europe. Um, uh, this um, oil embargo uh, was lifted in the spring of 1974, but meanwhile, OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which includes many non-Arab countries, 
uh, took advantage of the situation and uh, drastically uh, spiked uh, or uh, jacked up the, the cost of oil. Um, and so uh, you, uh, the price at, uh, per barrel went from, about, it went from about $5 per barrel in October 1973 to about $20 per barrel in uh, December of that same year. Um, now, the result is that you do have these long lines at the gas station. And even after gas became readily available again, it was now much more expensive. Uh, higher energy costs uh, drove up the cost of everything else, of course. Um, and so this you know, exacerbated the um, existing weaknesses in the U.S. economy, you know, leading to uh, a deepened recession, stagflation, all the rest. And um, what this leads to is a strong feeling of vulnerability, uh, impotence, you know, decline, weakness uh, on the part of Americans. Uh, and interestingly, this, this coincides with a sense of empowerment, a resurgence, uh, confidence on the part of the Arab states. Sort of the Americans are declining in, in their self-perception. The Arabs are on the, on the upswing. Um, and you know, this sense of confidence on the part of Arab states was especially pronounced among the uh, oil-rich Arab countries for obvious reasons. Uh, the spike in oil prices allowed Arab oil-producing states to amass enormous revenues, and much of that wealth circulated through the global economy in the form of investments, bank deposits, and purchases of goods and services. The largest single destination of Arab capital was the United States, where in the second half of the 1970s, uh, Arab governments and private actors invested tens of billions of dollars. Consequently, over that same period, there was enormous concern in the United States, sometimes bordering on hysteria, over the extent to which the United States had become vulnerable uh, to economic control by wealthy Arabs. Uh, this sentiment was especially evident in, in uh, American mainstream and popular culture. Uh, news coverage, movies, television programs, uh, and even novels. Uh, not only were the Arab states trying to use their wealth to force the United States to change its Middle East policy, the argument went, they were buying up American properties at an alarming rate, thereby gaining a stranglehold over the nation's economic and cultural life. Um, in uh, novels and news stories featuring such encroachments, uh, a common device was simply to list the various American locales, prominent and obscure, in which wealthy Arabs had purchased major properties, uh, to show how thoroughly uh, the tentacles of Arab economic power had crept into the nooks and crannies of uh, American life. Uh, so, for example, uh, the protagonist of Harold Robbins' 1974 novel, The Pirate, a rapacious Arab plutocrat named Bider El Fay, is described as having wound up as the controlling stockholder of a small bank in La Jolla, California, a mail-order insurance company based in Richmond, California, I mean, Richmond, Virginia, and a home loan and finance company with 40 branches in Florida. A 1974 article in the Wall Street Journal uh, reported that Adnan Khashoggi, a Beirut-based Saudi Arabian who has purchased two California banks, 
also has acquired about $1 million in raw land for development in California. The Kuwait Investment Company this month bought Kiowa Island off Charleston, South Carolina. Wooten and Associates, a Dallas builder and developer, says it has gotten about $200 million in Middle East financing for an apartment development in St. Louis. So always just this listing of places uh, where Arabs are acquiring properties. Uh, it's often forgotten that one of the most famous slogans to come out of 70s cinema, uh, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, um, was itself closely tied to American sense of impotence and rage in the face of an economic onslaught from the Arab world. Uh, that line, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, comes from the award-winning movie Network, released in 1976. Uh, as the title suggests, uh, the movie is about an imaginary television network called UBS. One of the news actor anchors on UBS, a man named Howard Beale, uh, suffers a mental breakdown um, and starts making outrageous statements uh, during his news broadcasts. Now, instead of doing the humane thing and uh, taking Beale off the air and getting him into treatment, the... Um, uh, the greedy managers of UBS uh, decide to keep him on the air because his wild rantings are great for the network's ratings. And Beale's popularity becomes especially evident in the movie's most famous scene in which Beale delivers an impassioned diatribe about the eroding quality of life in America, of the rampant inflation, the exploding crime rate, uh, worsening pollution, the you know, incompetence and corruption of American politicians, and then exhorts his audience members to get up out of their chairs, go to their windows, stick their heads out, and shout, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Um, and across the country, tens of thousands of Americans follow Beale's advice, demonstrating his hold over the American public. Uh, the main villains at UBS are a brash young producer, played by Faye Dunaway, and a company executive played by Robert Duvall. Uh, the Dunaway and Duvall characters conspire to keep Howard Beale on the air because his ratings are so high. And in fact, they're so thrilled with Beale that they give him his own time slot, an Oprah-style talk show on which he delivers... Um, uh, daily Jeremiads to a live television audience. And on each show, you know, Beale invades against the empty consumerism of American life, working himself up into a wild frenzy. Uh, and each show ends with Beale getting so overwrought that he actually loses consciousness and collapses in a heap on the stage. And then you know, the theme music comes on. Bum, ba, dum, ba, you've been watching the Howard Beale show. It's a perfect arrangement for UBS. The show is extremely popular, uh, and it has an edgy and countercultural feel without really damaging any entrenched interests. I mean, Beale can inveigh against the shallowness of American life all he wants, but as long as he doesn't attack anyone or anything, nobody gets hurt. But then, the unpredictable Beale turns his wrath on UBS itself, raising questions about CCA the corporation that owns the network, and to the extent 
to which CCA is itself being controlled by sinister outside interests. Beale launches his attack just as the Faye Dunaway character is speaking at a convention for UBS affiliates in Los Angeles, as we'll see in the following film excerpt. Boston, a part of the Port of New Orleans. 
and industrial park in Salt Lake City. They own big hunks of the Atlanta Hilton, the Arizona Land and Cattle Company, the Security National Bank in California, the Bank of the Commonwealth in Detroit. They control Aramco, so that puts them into Exxon, Texaco, and Mobile Oil. They're all over New Jersey, Louisville, St. Louis, Missouri. And that's only what we know about. There's a hell of a lot more we don't know about because all of those Arab petrodollars are washed through Switzerland and Canada and the biggest banks in this country. For example, what we don't know about is this CCA deal and all the other CCA deals. Right now, the Arabs have screwed us out of enough American dollars to come right back with our own money by General Motors, IBM, ITT, AT&T, DuPont, U.S. Steel, and 20 other American companies. Hell, they already own half of England. So listen to me. Listen to me, goddammit. The Arabs are simply buying us. There's only one thing that can stop them. You. You. So, I want you to get up now. I want you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the phone. I want you to get up from your chairs, go to the phone, get in your cars, drive into the Western Union offices in town. I want you to send a telegram to the White House. Oh my God. By midnight tonight, I want a million telegrams in the White House. I want them wading knee deep in telegrams at the White House. I want you to get up right now and write a telegram to President Ford saying, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I don't want the banks selling my country to the Arabs. I want the CCA deal. Stop now. I want the CCA deal. Stop now. Come on. I want the CCA Okay, so in the logic of the movie, you know, Howard Beale is clearly insane, right? But he's right about this, right? Just, I mean, what was the reaction of the, uh, of the company executives when he ratted them out? He was like, oh my God, busted! So, you know, when you're talking about the danger of petrodollars, not even a madman can uh, exaggerate. Um, you know, films like Network uh, vastly overstated the extent of Arab investment in the United States. Although Arab governments and companies were buying up some properties uh, the, uh, in the United States, these transactions represented uh, a very small fraction of the overall investment uh, in, in the United States. 
um, by far the biggest sources of foreign investment were countries like Britain, Canada, and uh, the Netherlands. Uh, and yet somehow the specter of rampaging Dutchmen never inspired much fear in American hearts. Um, now, there, uh, as you might imagine, uh, Arab Americans are uh, not uh, very happy about this sort of thing. And you do see some pushback coming from Arab American organizations, but it's at this stage fairly fragmented and uh, ineffectual. There, uh, there are, in this period, uh, a couple very important Arab American organizations there's the Association of Arab American University Graduates, uh, which tends to take a, a radical nationalist perspective on uh, public affairs. And then the National Association of Arab Americans, which is more moderate. Uh, both of them, uh, although you know, operating on very different premises, uh, share a, an interest in the Arab-Israeli conflict and devote most of their energy to trying to uh, talk about the injustices done to the Palestinians and to, to uh, Arabs generally. Um, so they, there, there are some protests against these kinds of depictions in the media coming from both organizations, but they're not very um, numerous or very well coordinated. Uh, there is uh, one figure who does in this period uh, really uh, go after the um, uh, popular media, especially uh, television. Uh, and this is a, a young communications professor at um, uh, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville named Jack Shaheen, who actually is still around and, and publishing uh, works uh, on this subject. And in the mid to late 1970s, he, he sort of undertook on his own to monitor um, television programming. And this was before VCRs really had become uh, widely available on the, uh, on the commercial market. And so poor Jack Shaheen is just sitting there um, in his living room taking notes uh, from the programs, you know, trying frantically to get everything down. And sometimes he would write to the networks for, uh, for transcripts. And you can see this in his, in his papers. It's really funny. He'll, he'll write in and he'll say something like, well, you know, I just saw this uh, uh, Charlie's Angels program that I think was kind of racist. Could you send me a, a, a transcript so I could see for sure whether it was? And the network would say, uh, no. So he, he, was, you know, he had a hard time making any headway. He did eventually publish a book based on his research um, called The TV Arab. It came out in 1984, uh, so well after these events. So in the, in the, he, he's out there uh, making what kind of a, you know, whatever kind of stink he can, but he's, he's not really uh, making much headway. Um, now, um, one theme I want to stress, however, is that although, you know, for the most part, the uh, circulation of petrodollars and the public portrayal of the phenomenon you know, cr- tended to create greater antagonism between Americans and, uh, and the Arab world, um, there also was a positive dimension. In some instances, petrodollars helped Americans gain a more favorable impression of the Arab world. And sometimes... Uh, the anti-Arab sentiment relating to petrodollars provoked a counter-narrative that tended to put the Arab world in a more favorable light. So one uh, example uh, is the kind of support that Arab countries, and in some cases companies or private interests, are uh, 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 donating to uh, American universities, especially for the purpose of setting up uh, Middle East study centers. Um, now, to be sure, this did 
um, generate a fair amount of controversy uh, where people would uh, you know, object that this was a way for Arab governments to uh, you know, gain control or at least uh, you know, pernicious influence over the education of the young, right? And so there, and there was a lot of uh, brouhaha over this. And in some cases, they, uh, the university in question had to return the money that it had gotten because it, it was so controversial. Uh, nonetheless, um, the general impact of this kind of financial support was uh, in favor of allow, uh, either establishing new uh, Middle East study centers, and uh, here's uh, one that you know, many of you know uh, well, or um, if they already existed, helping them expand. And uh, there is a, you know, a very a significant legacy from that kind of support, which is that um, these centers were allowed to um, become a lot more prominent, a lot more visible, um, and you know, more sophisticated in, their, uh, in the kinds of uh, research that they, um, that they subsidized. And you know, in general, this created a climate in which there was you know, more knowledge about the Arab world. And to the extent that that helped to combat uh, false stereotypes about the region that certainly uh, you know, redounded to the benefit of uh, U.S.-Arab um, uh, reconciliation. Okay, um, now there's another um, sort of manifestation of this, which, as I said earlier, has to do with the, uh, um, you know, the you know, anti-Arab sentiment eliciting a backlash or a counter-narrative that, ha- that tends to place the Arab world in a more favorable light. And this is where the, the story of Abscam comes in. Um, uh, and we can say that the story begins in 1977 when a federal jury in Pittsburgh indicted a career swindler named uh, Melvin Weinberg. Uh, and this is the guy who's played by uh, Christian Bale in the movie uh, on charges of mail fraud, wire fraud, and conspiracy. Uh, Weinberg copped the plea in exchange for a reduced sentence. He uh, agreed to plead guilty and to help federal authorities catch other offenders. So Weinberg and a team of FBI agents began conducting sting operations in cities along the eastern seaboard. Now, at first, their targets were ordinary financial criminals, not politicians. But uh, Weinberg had a knack for fashioning scams out of current events. And the ongoing drama over OPEC and oil prices proved irresistible. He began representing himself to potential sting targets as the agent of an imaginary Arab plutocrat named Kambir Abdurrahman, who headed an equally imaginary company called Abdul Enterprises. Now, the right, that's the tip-off right there, right? Because Abdul, based in Arabic, just means servant of. It's got to be connected to either, you know, Abdurrahman, Abdul Latif, something. You don't just say Abdul, but, you know, that, that was good enough. Good enough for Weinberg. Um, Abdul was interested in all manner of business, real estate, construction, entertainment ventures, financial speculation, even the purchasing of stolen artwork. Now, all of the sting operations involving uh, the fictitious Arab were grouped under the heading Abscam. Uh, which is short for Abdul Scam. Now, because so many of Weinberg's phony Arab projects required government licenses, favorable zoning decisions, uh, and other kinds of official authorization, Abscam could not stay out of politics for long. And Weinberg 
and the FBI soon found themselves in contact with Angelo Arichetti, who was the exuberantly corrupt mayor of Camden, New Jersey, who also held a seat in the New Jersey State Senate. So he holds both legislative and executive power, sort of like a, like a mini version of Huey Long. Um, and, uh, he, uh, and so it starts out with, uh, and he, of course, is played by uh, Jeremy Renner in the movie. Uh, it starts out with uh, Arachetti taking a bribe from you know, what he thinks is this uh, fictitious Arab uh, company uh, uh, to help with the, um, so, that he, so that he will get all of the uh, licenses and you know, zoning authorizations necessary for the construction of a casino in Atlantic City, you know, from which he, of course, is going to uh, uh, profit in all sorts of ways. But very soon, Arachetti makes it clear that he's got all sorts of friends and uh, associates, acquaintances in the U.S. Congress. And he puts uh, uh, Weinberg and the FBI in contact with them. So in the second half of 1979 and into early 1980, Weinberg and um, an FBI agent named Anthony Amorosa uh, met with several members of Congress enlisting them in an array of schemes that amounted to government action in exchange for money. And occasionally, a, uh, an FBI agent dressed up as a fake Arab uh, uh, named Yasser Habib, who was the you know, associate of, uh, of, uh, of Abdul, um, would uh, attend the meetings. Um, you know, and, and for the most part, the, the promised government action uh, took the form of uh, arranging, uh, of uh, sponsoring a private bill in Congress so that Abdul and Yasser could uh, gain permanent residency in the United States. Because the, the story that, that they told was that they were uh, you know, mortally afraid that a revolution would take place in their home country. And the home country was always a little bit vague. Sometimes it was United Arab Emirates. Sometimes it was just left unspecified. But you know, they're, they're afraid that a revolution is going to take place, and uh, they'll be uh, kicked out, and they'll lose all their money. And they want to, what they want to do is get permanent residence in the United States and get as much of their money out of the country beforehand as they can. And in exchange for these promises of, from congressmen that they would sponsor this private bill, uh, the congressman you know, walked out of these meetings literally with just suitcases stuffed with cash. Okay. Uh, and, uh, of course, most of these encounters were uh, secretly videotaped. Now, um, after this scam, you know, this scam became publicly known, a lot of people in the media and certainly in the Arab-American community expressed real um, amazement and, in the case of Arab-Americans, you know, chagrin and, and disgust over how easy it seemed to be to convince these you know, supposedly sophisticated members of Congress that you know, the FBI agents with uh, you know, just wearing headdresses and gowns and uh, speaking in fake accents and waving around bundles of cash were real live Arabs trying to gain influence with the US government. And for years, I too had that reaction. Like, how could anybody believe this? This is absurd. But actually, if you look more closely at Abscam, it's a little more easy to understand uh, how it worked. Because the, um, this guy, uh, um, Yasser, he actually made very few appearances. He showed up just a couple or three times. And when he did, it was often in some very ceremonial setting where and he, it, it, uh, everybody was kind of, you know, it was very awkward and tense and people were nervous. 
and people, uh, and he would come out very quickly, do a, do a meet and greet, exchange a few words, and then disappear. And so under those circumstances, it, it probably wasn't too easy to, to spot a fake. And so most of the information that the targets of these scams uh, or of this sting operation um, gained about Abdul Enterprises came not from, you know, from uh, any person uh, acting as an Arab, but rather from uh, Weinberg and, uh, and uh, some of the other FBI agents who impersonated um, the go-betweens. And, and, you know, it was, they were just, you know, they were not expected to have any great knowledge about the Middle East. Uh, they were, you know, uh, uh, basically American con men. That's what they were, that's what they were, and that's what they were playing. And uh, so if they exaggerated about the amount of money that was um, uh, on offer, or if they exhibited ignorance about, about the region, that was not surprising. Weinberg, uh, for example, would refer to the United Arab Emirates as United Arab Emigrants. Uh, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. He, he doesn't know any better. No one's expecting that he will know any better. Um, so it's, it's a bit more understandable that people were taken in by this because they were, they were meeting not the Arabs themselves, but meeting with people who were speaking for them. Okay. So the story of Abscam uh, broke in early 1980. Uh, you know, it became public knowledge that the FBI had been conducting this, this uh, sting operation. And so uh, you know, several members of Congress, you know, one, one senator and several um, members of the House of Representatives were uh, exposed, indicted, and uh, eventually uh, convicted. And you do have a, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, very anguished coverage of this in the American media. Uh, and for the most part, it's a debate between those who are decrying the, uh, the corruption itself, you know, represented by this headline, you know, that the congressman, you know, uh, traded the public trust for, for payoffs uh, versus those who were concerned about uh, FBI entrapment, you know, es- essentially creating a crime where none had previously existed and then nabbing people for succumbing to temptation. So that's the, that's the debate that's taking place uh, within mainstream news media. Now, for Arab Americans, there's a, uh, a very different set of uh, perceptions. Um, and much of it has to do just with the sense that well, wait a minute. So a scandal occurs in which no actual Arabs take part, but the upshot is that it makes Arabs look bad. Now, there, there's something wrong with that picture. So enter um, James Abarizic, who is a Lebanese-American former senator from South Dakota. He served in the Senate from 1973 to 1970. Uh, early 1979. Uh, So he, by this time, had left the Senate. Um, And he teamed up with James Zogby, who is an Arab-American activist um, focusing particularly on the Palestinian issue. And they formed this new organization called uh, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, or ADC for short. And many of the people who joined this group and, and, and formed its 
early leadership were veterans of those two organizations I mentioned earlier, the um, Association of Arab American University Graduates and the National Association of Arab Americans. Um, but they, uh, uh, what they're uh, representing is a new focus on uh, demeaning and discriminatory portrayals of Arabs in the uh, American media, um, rather than uh, the, the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is the, the focus of the other two groups. And so um, what you see is uh, this, they're really starting, uh, uh, focusing on this issue, and it's in the context of this new organization that Jack Shaheen, the guy I mentioned earlier, starts to get a bit more of a, of a platform. And so there, uh, the, there are a number of early publications that ADC puts out about the baneful influence of Arab stereotypes, you know, in this case on children, but in, in other contexts um, as well, uh, authored by Jack Shaheen. So he's, he's finally got an organization that is promoting his work and gives him greater visibility. And uh, the, also, you have these early campaigns that ADC wages um, where they, uh, they worked out this, they came up with this um, approach that was quite effective. And basically what they did was, you, at the local level, members would uh, identify instances of you know, demeaning or you know, defamatory portrayals of Arabs. And so people at, you know, in, in that community would send in letters and you know, call uh, the offending party on the phone and, and so forth. And then the national organization uh, would send its own letters to the to the offending party, and also if there was some um, uh, tie-in with radio or television, threaten to contact the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and uh, and you know maybe uh, imperil the, the the license of the of the offending station. And so this example from Largo, Florida, actually was very successful. Uh, it, you know the. This is a billboard that was uh, put up for, uh, for a local Toyota dealer. Uh, it's, you know, shortly after the campaign um, was launched, the, the billboard was taken down. The, the, radio, the, the television station that aired ads you know, for the same dealership apologized and stopped running them. And so this was touted as a real success story. Uh, this case was somewhat more ambiguous, and it's actually pretty uh, remarkable when you think about it. Uh, this is uh, a, for some charcoal briquettes called Sheiks uh, being marketed in Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, and so, you know, ha, 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 burn Sheiks, get it? Um, so there, you had a similar kind of campaign mounted against, uh, against this group. Uh, and the, but the proprietor of the business was far more hostile. And in fact, uh, according to ADC, he responded to this campaign by uh, sending a letter that contained uh, uh, scatological references to the sexual practices of Arabs. Um, and then he did take the, this product off the market, but he said he was doing so only because there were, uh, the manufacturer was no longer supplying them. And then as soon as the supply was resumed, he would be selling them again. So it just, these cases kind of give you a sense of the, the kind of um, campaigns ADC was in, engaged in and the, the, the sort of uh, very uneven success uh, that they um, 
they enjoyed. Uh, nonetheless, it is a, a new focus for Arab American political activism, and they do um, succeed in um, getting a, a more respectful tone regarding portrayals of the Arab world in substantial sectors of the, uh, 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 of the American news media. Now, the problem, however, is that as you move into the early 1980s, a whole new set of uh, threats and problems uh, emanating from the Middle East and the Arab world captures the um, attention of the United States. Uh, obviously, the uh, Iranian Revolution, uh, which, although it involved a non-Arab country, nonetheless generated a lot of animosity toward the Islamic world as a whole, and many Americans weren't all that uh, uh, clear on the distinction between Iranians and Arabs, and so a lot of Arabs uh, suffered as a consequence of negative views of Iran. And uh, in 1981, there was a big brouhaha over uh, these supposed Libyan hit teams that had come to the United States to uh, to assassinate uh, President Reagan. And you know this, of course, and you know the re- the very real um, activity that Libya and other Arab actors were engaged in um, created, it creates this new narrative of threat emanating from the Arab world um, that it becomes difficult for Arab Americans to deal with. So even though the particular problem of petrodollars, that particular threat or the perception of, the, of that threat um, recedes considerably by the early 1980s, it's superseded by this new set of threats and that uh, has the impact of placing Arab-American activists uh, or forcing them to remain on the defensive where they had been in previous years. Uh, nonetheless, it, it, this really does represent a, an important shift in focus in Arab-American political activism. And that's you know, one of the issues that I'm uh, exploring uh, in my book. So I just thought it, it would be interesting to show that particular dimension of this, uh, of this movie that has uh, captured the attention of the American public uh, these last months. And I thank you for your attention and look forward to engaging in a dialogue with you. Thank you.